Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Livewire. I am your host, Luke Burbank. We are doing something um, a little different on this week's episode of the show. So when we record an episode of Livewire, we usually have a lot of extra stuff. And sometimes that stuff is really amazing, but it just doesn't fit into the one-hour broadcast of the show. So this week, we are actually going to get a chance to play you some of the interviews that we couldn't fit into the show before. These are really, really great conversations that I am so excited are finally going to get onto the airwaves, including two interviews that we did during the Portland Book Festival back in November of 2018, one with author Luis Alberto Urea, and the other with the poet Eileen Miles. Plus, we have a special treat. I can say, honestly, this was unlike anything we'd ever done on the show before. We talked to a Portland legend, Mosho the Cat Rapper, who also came on the show back in 2018. There was talk of cats. There were raps about cats. It was an unforgettable moment on the show, uh, which you will get to enjoy coming up here in just a few. First, though, let's get started with this conversation with novelist and essayist Luis Alberto Urea. His decade-long career has generated 17 books. He was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for nonfiction. Uh, He was called a literary badass by NPR, which I'm sure got somebody in trouble for using the term badass on public radio. Uh, Maybe someone's getting in trouble again for that. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's happening right now. Uh, Luis's latest book is called The House of Broken Angels. And uh, me and our announcer, Elena Passarello, got together with Luis during the Portland Book Festival, uh, on stage at the Alberta Street Pub in Portland. Here's what that sounded like. Luis, welcome to the show. Que pasa, Luke? Nada mucho. Or as my relatives would say, Lucasito. Ah, yes. That is, uh, that is I, I, I used to date somebody who, uh, who's Mexican-American, and I would go to many a family event, and in reading this book, uh, it was a trip down memory lane for me. For people that haven't had a chance to pick it up yet, can you kind of describe a, a bit of the plot? What's happening in The House of Broken Angels? Um, it's, it's a novel inspired by my brother's death, which is a real laugh riot for this show, um, but it was actually this joyous experience of this mad Mexican-American family. And my brother was was about to die of cancer, which is also you know big laugh riot. But um, the 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 kids decided to give him a farewell birthday party, and my brother was kind of an egotist, and uh, he suddenly realized that it was going to be a living wake, and he could attend his own wake, and then he could sort of direct the wake, so force everybody to tell him how cool he had been <laughs> while he was alive, so he could make a grand exit, and uh, I. When it happened, it was, it was, I call it the Mexican Finnegan's Wake, right? right? Because every, well, you know, you were around families like that. In honor of that still, I wear my patriotic taco pin. Yeah. But um, I saw a place in the Boston airport the other day called Burritos Without Borders. And I was like, you turn your back on the caravan for three days and this is what happens. Look what happens. Gosh. A burrito without a border, yeah. that'd be no tortilla, so that'd be a mess. <laughs> that'd be like an omelet. Um, Tell them at Logan Airport, which is where I saw this. So, so all, all hell broke loose, and I like to tell audiences about it, that it was every kind of Mexican you'd ever imagined and a bunch you'd never imagined. You know, everybody was there. And the new generations, the kids who had gone to college, you know, and the older generations, and uh, there are 122 children. Nobody knew where they had come from, little kids everywhere. And then Samoans showed up. And I, I asked my nephew, who's the Samoans? They're like, well, they're your cousins, man. I was like, hey, you know. And I thought, this is the new Mexican family, which is an American family. Did you, in the moment when your your brother is, is, is going to be passing away, this is obviously mm-hmm. a, a sad time, also kind of a joyous time. Did you have the thought, this could be a book? No, actually, my wife saw the potential for the story. In some ways, it was like the way I had grown up. And... But, you know, I've got to say, since we're in uh, democracy meltdown right now, um, you know... That's a coffee shop two blocks from here, by the way. <laughs> oh, darn it. Yeah. I thought we were there. Yeah. Um, you know, to, to, to go through some of the experiences of the rhetoric 
turning foul on this experience. So example, we, you know, they'd forgotten, of course, to get him a birthday cake. So we rushed off to Target to get a birthday cake uh, at the last minute. And somebody stepped up to one of the women in the family and said, you know, Trump's going to throw you out of my country. And we thought, wait, we're trying to get a cake for someone who's dying. You know, could you please go to hell really quickly? <laughs> and then on the way to the funeral, people holding up build a wall signs. And I thought, you know, this is an important this is an important thing to talk about right now. Um, how do you I didn't know how to tell that story. And it actually came from both a comedic and a very tender thing. And that was <clears throat> he was dying of cancer. So he was greatly reduced physically. And he was he was tired a lot. And so they would put him in bed over and over during the day while this mad party was going on. And he called for me to come see him in his bedroom. And my brother, you need to understand, was a very uh, dignified, uh, kind of guarded fellow, not emotional, not huggy. He never said, I loved you, that kind of stuff. And I walked in the room not knowing what I'd find, and he was lying in bed, and he said, carnal, which is what we call each other, sort of flesh of my flesh, come on, get in bed with me. And I thought, what? He said, come on, lay, lay in bed with me. So we were lying there like this, you know, stiffly looking at each other. <laughs> and... He says to me, Carnal, do gringos kiss each other? And I said, gringos kiss each other? Like in movies? He said, no, in families. Do Americans kiss each other in families? And I said, like, mom? And he said, no, moms don't count because if you don't kiss your mom, you go to hell. <laughs> and then I said, sure, I've seen dads kiss each other and stuff. And he was just staring at me. And I said, do you want me to kiss you? And he's like, no, no way, man. I said, yeah. And so I kissed him on his forehead. It was the only time I ever kissed him in my whole life. And it was this, this, this manly thing took over, like, yeah, that wasn't so bad. No, that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> and then the, this, this dam broke of talking about mortality. And, and then off to the party. And then he'd get tired and go back to bed, and he'd call again. And we talked about our dad, and we talked about all the things he was out of time and trying to save the family. All You know, because it's a family, and there's good stuff and some bad stuff, and how does he rectify all his errors and so forth. And I think the miracle was watching so many people tell him that he had been a giant just by being a dad and trying to do his best. And, uh, and you know, we came home pretty devastated. I was, I'm always on the road. Um, and I had to leave there and go further on tour. And he died about a week afterwards. I was in Dallas, um, and came back to bury him. So when I, when I got home, I didn't know what to do. And it, it was my wife who kept saying, you should write about it. And I thought, write what? Cause I didn't realize, you know, that it was a special story. Wow. Um, this is a, a novel drawn from your personal experience. It's about a man who is about to pass away. His mother, as moms will do sometimes, steals his thunder by passing away before he can die. That was true. <laughs> that also that really happened? happened. I thought you just put that in as a kind of a clever uh, twist. Lucasito, I am a genius, but not that much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really going to embrace Lucasito as my, as my new nickname. <laughs> Is that sort of like Little Luke? <laughs> little Luke. Oh, I like it. Everything is little if you're, you know, especially if you're speaking Spanglish, you probably remember like in, a cake is un pastel in Spanish, but on this side of the border is un cakey. <laughs> <laughs> and then the little old ladies would call it un quequisito. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, you, you wrote this book yeah. and, and, you know, it's, it's drawn to some degree from a real experience you had with your family. Ha has your real family read the book and, and were you nervous about their reaction to how to finding themselves in different characters? Oh, yes. <laughs> um, you know, the, the family, I don't think are big readers necessarily, and certainly not in English. Um, the older generation. Um, and one of my nieces was helping me. She's sort of the model for the character of La Mini, okay. who actually cared for her father like Minnie is caring for her father in the novel. And I told her, shh, now I'm asking you these things and don't, don't talk about it, especially to my brother's widow, you know, the, and she said, oh, don't worry, Theo, I'm not going to say nothing. I was like, oh, cool. And then I went back to San Diego for a family dinner and the widow said, 
you have something to tell me? <laughs> and I looked at my niece. I said, did you tell her? And she said, yeah, tío. I said, okay. I said, look, I, I wrote a novel. It, it's fiction. It's a lie. I made it up. But because it's about the power of your husband, my beloved big brother, Tio Luis makes a movie, and you act in it. That way I know how to make the characters. Re and she just said to me, are you paying honor to my husband? And I said, yes. And she said, okay. So I thought, you know, cool. Yeah. And then the book tour came and went back to San Diego and we're in a bookstore. And it was sort of like your dream come true, maxed out people in the streets watching through the windows, right? And I thought, yeah, man, I'm the king of San Diego now. And I went up in front and my whole family was sitting. This turned into a nightmare. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> they were all sitting there. And my brothers had put on, my remaining brothers had put on their, their old disco dancing suits, and they were sitting there. And, you know, various half-sisters and nieces and nephews and the widow over here who had never seen me speak. And one of my brothers, I know this is going out over the air, but I don't think he'll mind. One of my brothers is a real lover. Es un playboy. And he often has a new girlfriend. And so there was a very bemused-looking, lovely Latina woman in the front row, not knowing what's going on. And through the whole reading, he kept pointing to her, saying, it's my girlfriend. <laughs> and at one point, the whole family held up the book to show me. Like, I didn't know who wrote it. Oh! And I did, I did the talk, and I was really nervous about it. And one nephew, who's very clearly a model for a main character in the book, and I'd never spoken to him about it, and there's a signing line, and he kind of pushed ahead, and he said, Tio, I got to talk to you, man. I said, uh-oh, here it comes. And so I said, what do you need to know? And he said, I just want to tell you that you made thousands of Americans love my dad. I thought, whoa, wait a minute. But then the punchline is the very next sentence is, so who's going to play me in the movie, dog? <laughs> <laughs> like that, man. It was like instant. Wow. And I said, that's not you. And he said, oh, yeah, it is me. <laughs> wow. And when you do these readings, it's not like your classic stand and spit, right? Like, no. like having the book in front of you that you can hide behind and sort of doing the voices. When Luis, I've seen, I've had the pleasure of seeing Luis read a couple of times. It's like drop the book, like eye contact, monologue. I don't know. How would you describe your, your approach to giving these public readings? Ham bone. Ham bone, ham bone. <laughs> yeah. As in you are ham boned? Yeah. Or you no, ham no, it up? No. no, I'm hamming it up. Well, you know, actor too. I was a theater major. So, ah. and you know, I, I, I'm super nearsighted. And it just, it happened at Breadloaf. I, I was reading from Hummingbird's Daughter and I couldn't see it. <laughs> and I just chucked it and kept going. And I didn't know that that was going to be some sensation. So oh, yeah. then thereafter, here at Tin House, in fact, in, in Portland, they were like, do that thing. I said, what thing? The thing you did. And so then it became sort of my trademark, and I was kind of screwed after that. Yeah. You know what? Let's do this. Uh, we should take a quick break. Uh, this is Live Wire Radio from PRI. We're here as part of the Portland Book Festival this week. We have Luis Alberto Aria here. We're at the Alberta Street Pub, and we'll be back in just a moment. Livewire is supported in part by Fully. Have you ever noticed how kind of not great you feel after you sit at work all day? Truth of the matter is your chair is probably part of the problem. Most chairs and desks, they restrict movement, which leaves your body kind of achy. Now we'd like to tell you about Fully, designer and collector of standing desks, chairs, and other workspace tools that encourage you to move so you will feel better at the end of your day. Uh, I use a fully TikTok stool when I am recording these messages, and it has really changed my whole kind of physicality. After a long day, and I know it doesn't sound like a real job, maybe because it isn't, but after a long day of recording things at my home studio, sitting on a TikTok stool, I feel great. I don't feel like I've been ossifying for the last eight hours. I feel like I'm ready to go take on my evening. Uh, so I can't recommend fully highly enough. Get your body moving in your workspace like I've done. Go to fully.com slash livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash livewire. Fully, 
desks, chairs, and things to keep you moving. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. All right, we're going to get back to our chat with writer Luis Alberto Urea in just a second. First, though, I want to let you know that in this conversation, Luis uses a derogatory term uh, to describe an uncomfortable experience that he had when he was a kid growing up as a Mexican-American. It may or may not be appropriate for all listeners. We just thought we would give you a heads up on that. Uh, So here we go. Back to the interview. I don't want to generalize too much, but in reading this book, I kind of had what I thought was probably an epiphany many other people have had. But I feel like, generally speaking, when white writers write about family, the story is a lot of times everything looks great from the outside, but inside it's messed up. And this book was like, from the outside, there's some screwy characters, but they really love each other. Again, I don't want to generalize or ask you to generalize to like Latino family structure. But I mean, is that something that you were going for with this book? Oh, yeah, I uh, absolutely. I just, you know, I just wanted to make the case. And it was made vivid to me, to both of us, my wife and me, when we got to the to the pre-funeral celebration that we were thinking, oh, man, yeah, this is going to be great because, you know, this old Mexican family is going to be the best food ever. There's going to be some enchiladas, right? Some tamales, all that stuff. All American food. Nothing but pizza, KFC. There was a, a, a pot of spaghetti and Miller Lite, you know, Bud Light. And I realized this is an American family. And a lot of the kids didn't speak Spanish or Spanish very well or not naturally. But I thought that very thing because I'd been hearing so much bad stuff. And it's not like bad talk about us began with Trump. Right. And I grew up, you know, I didn't know I wasn't human until fifth grade. I thought we were human. Everybody I loved and revered, they were Mexican relatives, and I loved Tijuana. And in fifth grade, the first time I was called a greaser wetback, and I thought, what? And it was my Boy Scout friends. I thought, man, what? I thought I was all white or something. (laughs) And uh, yeah, they called me greaser wetback. And I thought, because you're a kid, you know, you internalize stuff. Sure. And I thought we had grease on us and we didn't know it, that only those guys could see it and that I had on my back. And I remember taking my shirt off in the bathroom in fifth grade, trying to find the grease. And that began this onslaught of realization that people didn't respect us, at least in Southern California. Um, And that was a shock to me. It really was. It was a a complete adjustment. Um, and if you look at a lot of the families, yeah, I think they seem alien or strange or, you know, but I think, you know, people driving a, you know, big four by four pickup truck with a cowboy hat looks pretty alien and strange. That's too, how a lot people. of the audience got here today. Oh, Louis, I, so just I love cool. your trucks, though. I love them. I, no, they rode uh, electric recumbent <laughs> bicycles here. This is Portland. They kayaked <laughs> they to kayaked. the theater, which is weird. A wheeled we're, kayak. Because we're landlocked currently. We're talking to Luis uh, Alberto Aria. Uh, he's the author of The House of Broken Angels. You are really fascinated with hummingbirds. Um, mm. it, it's come up in a number of your books, and it came up in this book. Aren't hummingbirds like a friggin' miracle? Like, I love them so much. That is I actually that's a just scientific stare, name. I just stare at them. And can't believe they exist. Friggin' miracle. Right. It's, it's in the textbook. Have you always, like, what, what is it about hummingbirds that fascinates you? Um, I wrote this book called The Hummingbird's Daughter. And uh, it was about a great aunt of mine, Teresita Urrea, known as the Saint of Cabora, the Mexican Joan of Arc. And the New York Times used to call her the Queen of the Yaquis. So she was a precursor, medicine woman, but precursor to the Mexican Revolution. And in the Yaqui tribe, the, the hummingbird is extremely sacred. Ah. And holds a lot of positions, much like the dove, maybe in the New Testament. Okay, um, and it's a, it's a, it, you know, it's a prayer carrier, it's a communicator, it's a dream provider, and uh, and they're very important in Mexican culture as well. Um, and so, you know, there it's the bird of the Virgin of Guadalupe, for example. So they're just really important. And when my brother, the last time I saw him. There weren't going to be hummingbirds in this one because I wasn't trying to be mystical. But when I said goodbye to him, he wouldn't let me say goodbye. He said, don't ever say goodbye to me. And we knew he was going to die. And he took my hand and I said, what should I say? And he said, tell me you'll see me next time. And then as I was leaving, he said, carnal, if you see hummingbirds, that's me. Wow. 
Luis Alberto Uria, everyone. The book is The House of Broken Angels. Luis, I feel like we have been getting to know you a little bit and, and your family, and um, uh, I feel like we could still get to know you even on a deeper level, though, which is why we have brought this jar here. Oh, it's an actual no. physical jar. Okay. In it, Luis, we have placed the five essential questions of our age. <laughs> we call this exercise the jar of truth. Okay. Here's how this is going to work. You're going to draw a question out of the jar of truth. Elena Passarello is going to read the question, and we would like uh, your most honest answer. There we go. If your friend is late for dinner, how long should you wait before going ahead and ordering your food? It's <laughs> an important question. You're asking a Mexican this? <laughs> Let's see. So if dinner is called for seven... My friends will show up at 10.30. <laughs> so I say, just go ahead and eat. And to hell with your friends. Okay. Do, wow. you, do you wait when, let's say, like not all the food has come? Do you wait for the other person's food to come before you start eating? Oh, I do. Yeah. Don't you? Me too. I do. You, you, you want to be... I do this ask, which is like most of my asks. I'm not really asking, but I'm trying to be polite. I'm like, oh, I can wait. But, yeah, but then I've no one's ever said yes. Please wait, because if they did, I'd have like <laughs> half a piece of pizza in my mouth already. Like I don't. It's like the reach you do sometimes for your wallet. Oh yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You ever want to see someone squirm and you know they're doing the ceremonial reach? Oh, Just yeah. let them actually see how far they get yeah, to the yeah, wallet, yeah, yeah. to the card. They're like, when is this gonna end? Yeah. <laughs> and they go slower and slower. Right. They go through their cards. Hmm, maybe the American Express card. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Actually, you know what? The, you hand that uh, quite expeditiously so let's have you uh, grab another question out of the jar of truth okay. we may really solve a lot of the world's problems here, here we today go. everybody all right question okay. number two from the jar of truth okay. oh it's another food question oh god when can you ethically throw out someone's food in a shared fridge like a work fridge oh um i think when it's growing penicillin <laughs> You don't want to mess with other people's food. What about when can you eat someone else's food in a shared fridge? Like a, a, on the faculty where you teach. Like, oh. are there is there ever an instance where you can? Um, I, I think you can do that when you can't get caught. <laughs> <laughs> Luis Alberto Uria. Check out the book, The House of Broken Angels. Sweater season is here, but before it's time to unpack the knitwear, Alaska Airlines suggests one more taste of summer. Alaska Airlines now offers low fares on non-stops from Portland to Maui, Hawaii Island, Kauai, and Oahu. Plus, included in that low fare is assigned seating, over 400 free movies and TV shows, and power outlets at your seat in case your battery is low and the movie isn't over. Aloha, Alaska Airlines. All right, next up, we've got a conversation with Eileen Miles, who has had a very celebrated career as a poet, as a novelist, uh, performer, and art journalist. Their most recent book of poems is called Evolution, and they joined us on stage at the Alberta Rose Theater. This was back in November of 2018 as part of the Portland Book Festival. Take a listen to this. Eileen Miles, welcome to Livewire. Um, thank you. Uh, this uh, book, Evolution, is amazing. I told you before the show, I, I tore through it and I was bummed out when it was done. I just, I was like, can I just start texting you or something? Can we keep this conversation <laughs> right. going? This is like the beginning of a beautiful relationship. Yeah. 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 Just start reading it again. I, you know, I'm. I'm <laughs> I'm Read very it backwards. Yeah. It has all satanic messages. Oh, really? You know, the other way. I went yeah. to a Christian school uh, as a kid, and we were told often that there was backmasking satanic messages in the music of ACDC and Kiss and these bands. Uh -huh. And then the, uh, the, the teacher, the Bible teacher, would play the songs backwards, and the messages were so boring. One was Wine <laughs> and Women. If you played a certain song backwards, it would go, Wine and Women. Uh, like, this is a very classy demon. 
Um, a bad poet, too. Yeah. <laughs> you would know. Uh-huh. Like, um, in, reading, in reading this book, I, I felt like you were very present. In the moment of writing these poems, there was a line that just stuck out to me for some reason. I loved it. You write in one of them, my arm rests on a pillow, and that feels pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you, when you're writing that, are you, is your arm resting on a pillow, and it feels pretty good, and you observe it? Uh, totally. Yeah. I don't have any other material. Um, <laughs> <than> what, <laughs> I, don't have a, I have no imagination. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Just limbs. Yeah. When this book is at its best, I think it does feel like we're just hanging out with you. Um, how do you know when you're doing something that is worth telling us about and when you're not doing something that's worth telling us about? I mean, I, 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 there's no way of knowing if it truly is worth telling us about. But but I feel like there's a kind of altered state. For some reason or other, I feel different now than I did before. And so now seems like the right time to write, you know? Um, that's are a bad you... explanation. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, but you know, you know, you get depressed, and suddenly you're like, you know, your energy flips, and you're high for some reason. Like walking my dog. There were just some mornings I'm walking her, and the city is crazy and beautiful, and I don't why, why today? You know, so that's kind of a ecstatic poetry state. You know? And what do you do when you are realize you're in that moment? Do you make a beeline to go home and start writing? Do you sit down where you are? Do you like talk into your cell phone? Like how do you how do you harness that? I carry little notebooks. I generally do that. And there's, there's always some place to sit, you know, and the dog is happy to wait and just <laughs> get to it. Because she's often the star. How often does a dog get to be a star of poems? So yeah, she knows you, this is you write about animals a lot. You write about the dog a lot in, in this book. Um, and I was looking at your website, and you said that you write, you, you write the word pig with a capital P now. Mm-hmm. What's the, what's the reason for that? Because I have shame for all the pigs that I've eaten in my life, you know? And I feel like we're all learning. We keep, every year we learn a new thing about how smart pigs are. First they were five years old, then they were like seven years old. They're going to be like 47 years old. Yeah. I mean, in terms of who they're as smart as. And they can recognize people from the back. I mean, which is a horrible thought when you think of them all being in these little cages, you know? What we're going to find someday is that there is actually a team of pigs that are writing all of this research on how smart pigs are. You're going to open a door <laughs> right. and there's like a room of them just typing. Right, right, right. Which is no. evidence that they're very smart. Which would be brilliant, exactly. Yeah. And, and hopefully it'll turn into a survival tactic. Yeah. Um, uh, we're talking to Eileen Miles. Their new book is Evolution. Um, you are going to read uh, from this. I am. Yes. At what point now? Yeah, could yeah. you? <laughs> Um, So I'm just going to read the best poem I ever wrote. Get it over with quick, right? Wow. Um, What's what's the name of this piece? It's called The Baby. Okay. This is Eileen Miles on Livewire. The baby says to the old man, let's have a cup of coffee. The old man says, now you're talking. Eileen Miles, everybody. (laughs) Guggenheim Fellow. Eileen Miles, everyone. Incroyable. Yes. Um, that was short and sweet. Yeah, I did it. Okay. Do you think that's the best that's poem you've ever written? Kind of is. Yeah, yeah. Because it ends and then you're like, what? Oh. It's just like it kind of crawls up on you. Yes. You know? A slow yeah. soaker. Yeah. Would you read us the second best poem you've written? <laughs> that is a little bit longer. Could you read Our Happiness? Absolutely, yeah. And actually, this poem sounds like it's about being young and poor, but it's actually about Sandy, and the whole city had no electricity. So. Her uh, Superstorm Sandy. Super, when, when this... Superstorm Sandy, yes, yeah. Um, our happiness. It was when the lights were out, the whole city in darkness, and we drove north to our friend's yellow apartment where she had power and we could work. Later, we stayed in the darkened apartment, you sick in bed and me writing ambitiously by candlelight and thin blue books. Your neighbor had a generator, and after a while, we had a little bit of light. I walked the dog, and you were still a little bit sick. We sat on a stoop one day in the late afternoon. We had very little money, enough for a strong cappuccino, which we shared sitting there, and suddenly the city was lit. Eileen Miles. Um, something I wanted to ask you about, I think this might be a good chance to kind of educate some folks out there that aren't as familiar with the way that we're using pronouns these days. You, uh, your pronoun is they, them. 
Yeah. And um, can you explain kind of how you arrived at deciding that, that that's what felt more right to you? I mean, it sounded so wrong when other people were doing it a few years ago. I was like, oh, that's not like intuitive. I said what everybody said. And then at a certain point, I started to think, well, sometimes I feel female and sometimes I feel male. And then it just seemed like it was kind of baggy in this great way that you could be over here and that you could be over there and that they just kind of held all that, you know? And it was just, um, it just seemed sort of bountiful and full of choices. And so, and also it's like the devil, you know, like, like, and um, I didn't see that part coming. Okay. <laughs> Everything basically is like the devil, <laughs> yeah. But um, I think when um, I went to Catholic school, so I know all about the New Testament. So um, Jesus had was was given somebody to cure. The person had devils in them, and they, you know, so they were like exercised. And so Jesus did what exorcists do, which is like, tell me your name. And the, Satan said, my name is Legion, you know. And I, that, that's it. It's sort of like the devil is many. The devil is a lot of people. The, day, the devil is they, them, the whole bunch of them, you know? Wait, the devil is using they, them now? I think that's the implication. It's like, if, if my name is Legion, then what do you call it? Like, it's right. they, right? right? It's not he, Legion. It's they, Legion. Right. Yeah. And I thought, I like that. <laughs> to be a gang of devils. Right. But I'm trying to I'm trying to I'm trying to merge it with the old thing because there is this thing where it's sort of like this a bit of a thing of like trans versus lesbian, which is a false thing, but it's kind of there. So I kind of like to refer to myself as like a they lesbian. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of. Is that catching on? Do you think? I know it's a complete failure. <laughs> I, have, I have no community now. <laughs> well, it's it sounds like, like the devil is your community now. So. Exactly. Yeah, have Being, a great time. Yeah. I, I heard you say that you love recording the audiobook version of your books, it's the which, most like, authors fun. I've talked to almost never like that process. Because really? like, you read your book for hours and hours in a recording studio. It can be tedious, but you like this. No, and you've got this one person across from you who you're, like, dying to amuse. Like, all you're trying to do is make the sound engineer laugh, you know? So I've had success with that, except like in New York, I had a sound engineer who I think was a performer who was just like, I'm not letting you have it, you know? And I was like, please, you know? So and they were pull, like, pulling out a performance from you by being withholding? Exactly, exactly, yeah. But so maybe that was good too. That but. describes like two of my three marriages, <laughs> by the way. Yeah. Oh. Do you think uh, do you think differently about your voice when you're working on prose than when you're reading poetry? And you when you both? say my voice, do you mean literally the thing that's talking the sound right of now? Your voice, yeah. No, no, it's the same thing. I'm so it's jerkier. Poetry is jerkier. You know, you sort of like it's like you sort of stop and start, and you're like all you're like a lot of voice. Like it's very they. Poetry is very they. <laughs> so, whereas prose is like it just goes on. The rhythm is big, and so you kind of it's about breathing, more like breathing. And and. Poetry, uh, it's asking you to sort of stop and change. And it's be... like driving in New York versus driving in California. Well done. Yeah. Well done. And driving in New York is the most fun in the world. You know. Uh, you ran for president in the early '90s, right? Are you the, still running? Like, is this a, just a once, state of being? Yeah. Once you're once you're a presidential candidate, you're sort of always alluded to that way. You're permanently running in a way. You can't stop it. So you've been running for president for the last 20 or so years, give exactly, or take. Exactly, exactly. And you yeah. wrote, in this book, Evolution, you wrote an acceptance speech for becoming yeah. president. And yeah. I, I swear to God, wh whoever wins the next time around, when they give their speech, I'm muting the TV. And I'm going to play the audio book of you right. reading this. Thank you. Yeah. So I was wondering if you would mind reading that. It's lengthy. Do you guys, do you guys down for that? So here we go. This is uh, Eileen Miles on Livewire. So first, I just want to say this feels incredible. To be female, to run and run and run and not see any end in sight, but maybe have a feeling that there's really no outside to this endeavor, this beautiful thing. You know, we don't have a single female on any of our bills. And what about two women, two women loving, or even more? A lot of women, a lot of money. Is there a message I failed to receive that the face of woman cannot be on our money? And what about the house I just won, that white one? When I sit there, and if I sit there, and I gotta tell you, I'm not sure I wanna sit there. Some of you might remember my first campaign. Yes, that was back in 1992. Few men have run for 24 years. 25 by the time I stand and take the oath in January to serve my country. 
I did not quit. I stand here with you on this beautiful, rapturous day, sunny day in New York, to turn around, to look back, and look at all that we've won. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's get back to that house, that white house. We often hear these words even as an explanation of what metonym means. Are you familiar with this term? Yes, I promise you a poetic presidency. <laughs> the White House speaks as a metonym. Certainly that White House we speak of is not the whole government. Like Fred Moten says, it is incomplete, but it has come to be a symbol of it. And I think two things. I think whiteness. I think of the whiteness of the house, and I think of houseness. It houses the government. Now that I have won, it offers to house me now. I now officially make that White House a homeless shelter. It is a complete disgrace that we have people without homes living on the streets of America. I have lived with them, not for long periods of time, but in the same way that I am the first president who knows what women feel because I am a woman, I am one. I have also eaten chicken with a homeless. I ate at the Bowery Mission, very rubbery, very chewy chicken. Those chicken were not happy when they lived, and they are no happier being chewed on dead at the Bowery Mission. And the chewers are not happy either, no. Here's the future. Good food at the White House for all the homeless in America. You know who the homeless are? They are military men and women who fought our pointless wars, who came home after each stupid, greedy war we have waged, and they got less. Is there a GI Bill for veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan? I'm not sure, but I don't think so. Can they buy a house? Who can buy a house? Under miles, they have bought the White House. That is my gift. The White House will house the mentally ill, outpatiented during the great President Reagan, meaning he threw them out of the house, the mentally ill thrown out of the American house, and the alcoholics who do not have free and abundant and available treatment, because this country breaks our hearts. We will habit them too. We will occupy all government buildings and memorials, housing and holding and loving the homeless and the sick and the starving. We'll do what the statue says, you know, liberty. We will take buildings, we will build buildings, and our culture, our new America, will begin to live. Our government needs to be in the business of living, not dying. What else is a government for? The government will become more departmental and take you in, you and your wonderful needs. We'll start with the Department of Women. Obviously, to say women matter and do matter so much and a lot, we need a distinct place in the government to specifically focus on female concerns, which is parity mainly, reforming Congress so that if America is increasingly diverse in a number of ways, our Congress must represent those groups percentage-wise. That's smart, don't you think? So if most of the people in America are female, so should be our government, right? America is not a department store. We want to do more in our country than shop online and at the mall. Let's face it, everyone is home shopping and yelling at each other on their computers. The malls are falling apart. The malls are pretty much gone. Let them go. We want to make real departments for who we really are, not shopping. We will be strong. Let's go. Let's go out. We are out there now. We are on the high line, yes. That's the way it works under miles. Early on, I described a department of culture. We will have that. We will have art in America, not just the magazine. Just for starters, we will multiply the budget of the NEA by tenfold. <laughs> we will bring back SIDA. That was like an art workers program we had in the 80s, but we will call it SIDA. SIDA. I don't know what. See what? I don't know. I just, I just get elected. I haven't worked everything out, but just think of the possibilities. <laughs> See the sky, see the river, see the Whitney. A lot of people we walk around appreciating, we will pay them. There'll also be a hear the program, the smell the program. That's probably what you're going to do early on with all those, you know, recovering veterans who don't have to live on the streets. Get them in on the see the, smell the, hear the programs. We're going to massively fund libraries, open 24 hours. They will not be filled with homeless people because they will have homes. So the libraries will be filled with people reading and watching movies and going into the conversation rooms and having conversations and so on. All education will be free. Trains will be free. Cars eventually will be banned. Cars are stupid. No more pumping oil. No more fracking. Everything will be driven by the sun or else will be plugged in electrically. Electric something. There'll be a lot of free food, a lot of art. Archery. <laughs> Everyone will be a really good shot. We'll get good at aiming, intentions, not killing. Oh, yeah, and we'll send a lot of masseuses to Israel and Palestine. No more pesticides. Here, anywhere, lots of small farmers, amazing number of stand-up comedians, lots of rehearsal spaces and available musical instruments and learning centers for people like myself who would like to play something, perhaps a guitar. Nobody... 
would be unemployed. Everyone would be learning Spanish or going out into the yard and helping the farmers improve the crops, just gardening, helping the flowers, distributing the flowers, see the flowers. When in doubt, always just being a Sida person for a while. There'll be a lot of people encouraging people to Sida. We want the Sida to come back. There'll be an increase in public computers like water, like air. Have we stopped the oil and fracking early enough to protect the water and air? We hope so. But there will be a decrease in private computers with an enhanced desire to be here exactly where we are, which some people would argue is there on the computer, which of course would be allowed, but being here would be cool. Some people <laughs> meditating, other people just walking around smiling, feeling good good about themselves, living shamelessly and glad. Guns would be buried, guns would be in museums, and people would increasingly not want to go there. Oh. Gun museums would die. What was that all about? Money would become rare. I would have a radio show as your president. Also, I might be on television. Also, I might want to talk to you. In the tradition of American presidents like Fiorello LaGuardia, the little flower, I would be President Edward Miles, the woman changing my name very often. Would probably be good. I would like that. And I would write a new poem for you each week. I might just walk around saying it. Eventually, you would forget I was the president. I'd go to the gym. There are people who like to manage things, just like there are people who like to play cards, and the managers would change often enough, and they would keep the parks clean, America increasingly turning into one big park, one big festival of existence with unmarked toilets and nightly, daily events and free surfing lessons and free boards. Just put it back when you're done. And a good bed for everyone. I just slept in the best bed last night. I slept on the plane. Sleep is great. Nobody will be sure to sleep. Everyone will be well-slept, chaotic and loving-hearted, and have all the time in the world to not kill to love and be president. Everybody take your turn and dance. Dance now. I love my fellow citizens. It's good to win. Thank you. I feel like I had a bad dream last night that like the head of the FBI decided to steal the election by making up about me because I am female, but that wasn't true. And we are really here undiluted, unmucked up, wide awake in America for once. See the, see the, see all of you and your fabulous beauty and your power and your hope. Thank you for your vote and I love you. Thank you so much. That was Eileen Miles reading their presidential acceptance speech from their latest poetry collection called Evolution. I can hear you Googling that right now, wondering who was that? How do I get a copy of that? Uh, that is the work of the great Eileen Miles. Uh, we've got to take a quick break. I'm Luke Burbank. You are listening to Live Wire from PRI. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, special thanks this week to Daniel Lennon of Portland, Oregon, and Jamie Marcus, also of Portland, Oregon. Daniel and Jamie are part of the Livewire member community. What does that mean? That means that they are generously supporting Livewire with a donation each month. And we are very thankful for that support because it is genuinely and really the way we were able to do this show week in and week out. So a big old thanks to Daniel and Jamie for making Livewire possible. Welcome back to Livewire. I am your host, Luke Burbank. All right, closing out the show this week uh, is a, um, well, a truly unique guest that we had on the show. Now, because our show is recorded in Portland most weeks, and Portland is full of interesting people, one of the things that we really like to do is try to meet one of those interesting people each week. It's a segment that we call New Fascinating Friend. And our new friend this week is Dwayne Moloch. Dwayne has become an internet sensation because he goes by another name, which you are going to find out about in a minute. Take a listen to this. Dwayne, welcome to Livewire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What up? Hey, man. So you have like 200,000 followers on Instagram. Yes. You are a rapper here yeah. in Portland. Yes. And what is your rap name? I go by I Am Mo Show, the cat rapper. We're in the building. <laughs> <laughs> and you rap primarily about cats. My love for cat ladies and cats. Yes, I do. <laughs> we have... A cat lady who loves you on the staff, Elena Passarella, our announcer. When the, when the email went around that you were going to be on the show, Mo Show, Elena 
was ecstatic. Yeah, there are a lot of exclamation points. We understand each other. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how, how did you start rapping about cats? Well, uh, for me, it was always about uh, living my truth. I did know that... Um, I've never been like a hardcore guy. I've always been like a lover and stuff like that. So I knew two things. I knew I loved cat ladies. I knew I represented peace and positivity. And I also knew that I love cats. So I figured why not rap about the things that I actually live? <laughs> you live in Portland now, but you I yes. grew up in Baltimore, if I understand. Did yeah. you have cats around as a kid? No, I did not grow up with any animals. Uh, so I never knew what I was missing. So long story short, when I went to college, I met a very cool cat lady who was into the same music I was into. And from there, we started hanging out. I started uh, going to her house on the weekends to study, and she had a black cat named Queenie uh, who would watch me study. And as, as the months went on, she would get closer and closer, and then one thing I know, she was in my lap at month three, and cat fever just took over. Uh, you have five cats now. Yes, I do, I got five cats. DJ Ravioli, Queen Sushi, The Mighty Mega Man, Black Savage, and Tally the Lover. <laughs> Did those names just, did they just appear to you when you saw the cats? Like, it just like, that was what they should be named? Yeah, it's just the way my brain works. I just, I see it and I'm like, that's what it is. Yeah, you said when you saw DJ Ravioli when you were, did you get him from a, a shelter? Uh, yeah, we got, we, um, we adopted him in they Arizona. They got him from an Olive Garden. Yeah, we got him. <laughs> Shout uh, out he has to a sister, Garden. Unlimited, and a brother, Breadsticks. <laughs> we adopted him from a shelter in, uh, in Arizona. And when I got the picture of him, I was like, that's Ravioli, he's the DJ. And when you look at him, I can't imagine any other name that cat having. It's not like he looks like a ravioli, but he looks like a DJ ravioli. Yeah, he's DJ. He's, yeah. <laughs> he handles all the beats, and, you know, he's my hype man. <laughs> <laughs> what is life like with five cats? That's a lot of cats. Um, it is always something going on. It's like a circus. There's always someone fighting or someone wanting to be pet. Uh, someone wants to be left alone, but then you need to pet me here. Okay, now you're done with him. Now I need you to pet me over here. Come over here, Dad. Let's do that. And then fight, fight, fight when you go to sleep. And let me play with your feet. So it's just <laughs> constant. Yeah. Yeah. We are talking to Mosho, the cat rapper. He's our new fascinating friend. Now, yeah. the rap game is... You know, it's a place where image means a lot. In a lot of cases, being, yeah. you know, tough yeah. is, is an important thing. Yes. Being uh, intimidating, being feared. Uh, do you get any grief from other rappers about rapping songs like Love Your Cats? No, um, I think they just kind of just ignore me. But, you know, at the end of the day, <laughs> again, I can look myself in the mirror and I know for sure I'm 100% living my truth. So cat people, cat ladies, I love you. I had never, uh, I had never uh, been a, a cat owner. Yes. Uh, until a couple years ago, we Sweet got man. a cat. My wife was very insistent, and we did. And it was like I finally got what the hype was about. You, you started living a cat life. I really did. Yeah. Um, well, you're going to perform a song for us. What are you going to do? Yeah, um, I'm going to perform a song for you. It's called uh, uh, "Don't Declaw Your Cat." Um, <laughs> and. Um, the reason why I created this, uh, I had, you know, a lot of my, I don't like to say fans, so a lot of my cat family, they like to send me messages. And one time they, you know, they sent me a message of this cat who'd just been declawed. And pretty much when you declaw a cat, you're cutting off half of the fingertips. And he was swinging in the cage, and you could tell by every time he just went to lean on his front paws, he was like screaming in pain. Oh. Um, and it really just uh, got me riled up, and it just destroyed me. Uh, and... That's why I created um, Don't Declaw Your Cats to educate people. Because when you don't declaw your cats, the, the claws help them balance, the claws help them stretch, the claws help them mentally and physically the best. So I wanted to explain to people that, is it really worth saving uh, you know, your new furniture just because you want to you know, declaw your cat? I mean, they, they shred all of my furniture. I don't really care. I just care about the safety of my cat. So I want to educate people on not declawing. All right. This is Mo Show, the cat rapper. So, our new fascinating friend on Livewire. Yeah, so check this out, everybody. We're going to turn up in here. We need some audience participation. So check this out. I say don't declaw your cat. So let me hear you say cats need their paws so you better not declaw. Hit it. Y'all yes. ready? We're going to get loud up in here. 
We're gonna tear this root down. Portland, where you at? Make some noise! Okay, cash need that paw, so you better not the claw. Hit it! I got it, cats need that paw, so you better not the claw. Look, all the cat gang pulling up on y'all. Look, cats need that paw, so you better not the claw. Hit it! I got it, cats need that paw, so you better not the claw. Look, all the cat gang pulling out. Look. Okay, way up in the field, though. Mosho, I'm for real, though. Heard you about the D-Claw. Nah, I don't feel, though. Feel it in your soul. Cutting off fingers, you so cold. Yeah, you talking, you love your cats, but I think that you should know. The claws help them balance. The claws help them stretch. The claws help them mentally and physically the best. I am Mosho, here to put it all to the test. The cat ladies can sleep, cause I'm here for them to rest. Uh, look, I'm so hot, I be burning ya. Weren't ya? About to say you did it, cause the first Furniture. I don't wanna hear it, let my cat he disappear it If my cat he claw it up, then he can get near it I am Mo Show, I don't care about That is Mo Show, the cat rapper Check him out on Instagram at I am Mo Show now That is gonna do it for our show this week A special thanks to our guests Luis Alberto Urea, Eileen Miles, Mo Show, the cat rapper And all of the great people at the Portland Book Festival and Literary Arts. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Foley, and the Jupiter Hotel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development and marketing director. Tim Harkins is our production director, and Christian Seger is our marketing associate. Our editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Elena Passarello is our announcer. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake, and our on-air mix is by Corey Shreppel. Thank you, as always, to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by Work for Art and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. And this week, we need to thank members Patrice Flynn of Portland, Oregon, and David Lowe Rogstad, also of Portland, Oregon. If you'd like to find out more information about our show, like uh, how you can get our podcast or how you can sign up for our informative newsletter, it's all available over there at livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. I love you guys. Yeah. We up in Portland, clear, no distortion, and everybody in this room is important. That is Mo Show, the cat rapper. PRI, Public Radio International.